And so they had a very negative view towards Jewish people. And that's why I tell you sometimes I have a love-hate relationship with people like Martin Luther. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've moved into Chapter 7 of our study of the Revelation. In this chapter, we will see the importance God ascribes the nation Israel during the end times. As we pick up, Dr. Brogy notes how some liberal teachers do not believe that the Bible is without error. And they use some verses like the first verse of this chapter, which talks about the four corners of the earth, as proof that the Bible is wrong because it indicates the earth is flat rather than round. We saw yesterday that this verse is a word picture, and Dr. Brogy pointed out numerous passages from the Old Testament that affirm that the earth is indeed round. But the point being made here is that those who don't believe God's word oftentimes are doing so because they don't want to believe it. If you want to find an excuse as to why the Bible cannot be believed, you'll find one. And some of you who are in high school, you're going to go off to the university and you are going to sit under professors who are going to try to dismantle your faith. Josh McDowell, if he's correct, he says 72% of kids from evangelical homes walk away from Christianity when they get to college. Well, they're not really walking away from Christianity because they never had it to begin with. You cannot renounce the faith and lose salvation. The Bible is clear about that. But it is a sobering thought to consider because the Bible is no longer taught. People are given uh, little idioms as to what the gospel is, false idioms like invite Jesus into your heart without any substance and no gospel at all. And so they have so-called conversions that are not conversions at all. And that's why they quote-unquote walk away. But nonetheless, God's young people need to be equipped and grounded so that when they go to the university, they can stand up and give an intelligent defense for the hope that is within them. Now, let's read all of verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that the wind, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree. So, in this passage, you have these four angels who are holding back something. And they're holding back the uh, devastating power of wind. Some of you weathered the last hurricane and even the one before that, and you saw the power of wind. Some of you have been through tornadoes, or you've seen what uh, an earthquake can do in creating a tsunami. And so what God is speaking here of is a natural disaster that He is going to use to bring as a judgment upon the world. And He commands these angels to hold it back, to delay it. Now, you may not know it, but angels are God's servants. Some of you went through my course on angels years ago, and we did a full-blown study on not only God's elect angels, but also those fallen angels called demons. And angels play a wide role in the Scripture. We've already seen them in the fourth and fifth chapter as worshiping. When we go to heaven someday, you will worship alongside of angels. It will be magnificent to watch it. In fact, this morning, in this worship service, there are angels here. You say, I don't see any. 
They're here. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that when the church gathers, angels come. They're observing your worship today. There's a lot more people here than you actually think. There are angel people here as well. They're persons. They're not made in the Imago Dei. They're different. Humans are unique in that respect, but they have all of the marks of personality, emotion, intellect, and will. So there are worshiping angels, and there are fallen angels. When we come to the ninth chapter of the Revelation, we'll see demons who will attempt to demonize the world. There are ministering spirits, the writer of the Hebrews says, sent out to render help to those who will inherit salvation. And so the same writer says that there are times when you can entertain an angel without ever even knowing it. But not only are angels worshipers, angels are witnesses. Uh, They will witness events, and they will bear witness of an event. When the world was created, Job tells us the angels were there, and they sang over the creation that God made. Or sometimes they give a message. They gave a message to Adam and Eve when they were posted at the entrance to the garden and forbidden to come back into the presence of God and to eat from that tree. Or the angel Gabriel, we studied in the book of Daniel, came and gave a message to uh, Daniel concerning 490 years of Israel's future. We saw the angel Gabriel uh, come to Zechariah telling him he's going to have a son who will be the forerunner of the Lord, John the Baptist. The same angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, you're, going to be, you're pregnant and you're going to be pregnant supernaturally. The Holy Spirit will overshadow your womb. It was about to happen and you're going to carry the Messiah himself. We see angels at the tomb of Christ, two of them announcing he is not here, he is risen. We see two angels at the ascension of Christ, reminding all those witnesses who are watching Christ go up into heaven that he is going to return in the exact same way. But not only, and by the way, when we come to the 14th chapter, we will see an angel, one angel, who will be... A, pro, a proclaimer of the gospel across the planet. They're worshipers, they're witnesses, but the Bible also teaches that angels are warriors. They were present at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Psalm 78, God gives us divine commentary on the plagues that came across Israel and how he used angels to execute those plagues. In 2 Samuel 24, God uses a single angel to deal with 70,000 of uh, Jewish people. And so here we have four angels holding back the judgments that are about to fall upon the earth. There is a deliberate pause for a deliberate reason. That brings us to point two in your outline. We want also to think about God's divine protection. God's divine protection. In verses two and three, the four angels are commanded to hold back the four winds of destruction. Look at verse 2, a fifth angel appears, and I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. Now, we've seen that angels are ranked, they're organized, and so this fifth angel who's carrying what the Bible calls here the seal of the living God commands with a loud voice the other four angels to hold back their judgment. Now, we're going to study these four angels, these four angels who are here, who are told back to hold, who are commanded to hold back this judgment. They sound the first four trumpets. 
And if you look into chapter 8 this week, you will see the four trumpets that they sound deal with these very areas of destruction that they are to hold back so that these 144,000 are protected until they are sealed. Now, most of us know something about the seal of God in Scripture, that it is not only a mark of ownership, but it is indeed a mark of protection. For instance, in verse uh, 3, we're told, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. Those are the three areas, the land, the sea, and the trees that you're going to see in these first four trumpets. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of God in their foreheads. So a seal indicates ownership, and in this case, a specific protection. God does not want these 144,000 in any way harmed. Why? Because in God's compassion, He does not want them killed because He wants them to preach the gospel so that men and women and boys and girls can get saved. Now, think about the seal of God as it relates to your life. The New Testament teaches it is a mark of ownership. Paul wrote in him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, you've got to hear the gospel before you can be saved. There's a lot of Christians who are copped out in our day. They say, I witness with my life. If you witness only with your life, you witness only to yourself. God's called you to witness in your lifestyle, but he's also called you to witness with your words. And some of us can't remember the last time we attempted in any way, shape, or form to witness with our words. No one can get saved by looking at your life. They have to hear the message of truth, the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of your salvation. Having also believed, they listened, they believed. What happened? They were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. You hear, you believe, and you're sealed. Who, the Spirit of promise, is given as a pledge Some Bibles say a guarantee, a down payment, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. God's Spirit living in you is your mark of protection and ownership by God Almighty that the good work He began, He will complete because Ephesians 4.30 tells us we're sealed until the day of redemption. You don't get sealed and then unsealed. You don't get saved and then unsaved. When God saves you, He saves you forever and ever and ever. And so it's an unmistakable mark. And if that mark is not in your life this morning, it just means you've never been saved. Paul says this to the church at Rome. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he does not belong to him. One of the three marks of assurance in the New Testament is that you are inhabited by the Spirit, so much so that He bears witness with your spirit that you've been born again, that you've become a child of God. And God becomes real in an entirely different way when that happens in the life of a believer. So Revelation 4.11 indicates there are 144,000 who are going to receive this seal of God, I said Revelation 4.11, Revelation 14.1 indicates not only will they have that seal, but they're going to have the name of God on their forehead. Just like the Antichrist will put his name on the foreheads of unbelievers, these 144,000 
Jewish evangelists will banish the name of God on their foreheads, and God is going to use them to proclaim the gospel. So there's a deliberate pause on God's judgment until these people are sealed. When they're sealed, they are given divine protection so that no one can harm them, so that more people can hear the gospel. Many believers are going to die during the tribulation. They're going to be beheaded. But these 144,000 will be supernaturally protected, which leads us to the third point. This chapter also speaks of God's distinct people, God's distinct people. Specifically, this group is identified in verse 4. And I heard the number of those who are sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. These 144,000, don't miss it, are specifically identified as Jews, as the sons of Israel. So at this point in human history, it's Israel front and center. Now, we studied the 70th week, 70-week prophecy of Daniel. Do you remember it? If you weren't here for that, you might want to go back and listen to the messages on Daniel 9, because if you don't understand Daniel 9, you're going to have great difficulty understanding the book of Revelation. There's 69 weeks and then a 70th week. And between the 69th and 70th week, there's a period of time which is now called by most evangelicals the church age. That's a theological catchword that we use to describe that time frame that started with Pentecost in which God is building His church. And so in that one verse of Scripture, there's a space of time. And I illustrated for you many passages of Scripture where both the first and second comings of Messiah are found in a single verse. Every Christmas, we will recite Isaiah that a child will be born, a son will be given. That's the first coming. That's the incarnation of Christ. But the governments of this world will rest upon His shoulders. When did that happen? Not yet, but it will happen at the second coming. And so in a single verse, there's a space of time. 69 weeks, first dealing with Israel's future, and then there's a 70th week. And we will see through the Revelation this 70th week referred to. It refers to a not a week of days, but a week of years, to seven years to this period of time known as the Great Tribulation. And so in the 70th week, called by the prophet Jeremiah, the time of Jacob's trouble, it is Israel front and center. God is going to use the Jewish people. Now, I'm going to emphasize this this morning for a reason. Because we have crossed a line in evangelicalism here in America. For the first time in American history... There are more evangelicals who say that God has no future plan for Israel, that the church is the new Israel, that God is done with Israel. And that is very dangerous theology. I know there are some well-meaning, born-again Christians who teach it, but it is not representative of what God has unfolded for us in the Word of God. John Calvin was a believer, but I think he was messed up on some areas of his theology. And now Reformed theology, as it's often called, has become a prevalent view in the American evangelical church. Um, It's a word that I think has been robbed by a certain segment of the body of Christ, just like the term charismatic. Am I a charismatic Christian? Yes. I believe that every born-again child of God has a spiritual gift. But do I believe that I should roll on the floor, be slain in the spirit, foam at the mouth, charm snakes, or speak in tongues? No. And so they've robbed a word 
uh, from many of God's people. And so it is with Reformed theology. Do I believe in Reformed theology? Yes. But do I believe in Reformed theology the way Calvin believed in it? Absolutely not. Now understand, John Calvin, Martin Luther, come out of Roman Catholicism. And of course, the Roman Catholic Church taught in their day, and they continue to teach it in this day, they've never changed their position, that the Roman Catholic Church is the chosen people of God, that the Roman Catholic Church has replaced national Israel, and they are the new Israel. Well, with all the corruption in the church, Luther and Calvin did us a service and that they brought people back to the true gospel, but they were not reformed in a whole lot of their doctrines. Many of their doctrines were still Catholic. And so they took the Catholic teaching and put a different spin on it. And they said the Roman Catholic Church is not the new Israel, but the body of Christ is all those who are born again. And so they had a very negative view towards Jewish people. And that's why I tell you sometimes I have a love-hate relationship with people like Martin Luther. Listen to what Luther said in terms of his replacement theology. In these words that I'm going to read, Hitler had read in the churches of Germany as a reason, a theological reason from a theological leader born and raised in Germany to exterminate the Jewish people. What then shall we Christians do, Luther wrote, with this damned, rejected race of Jews? Since they live among us and we know about their lying and blasphemy and cursing, we cannot tolerate them if we do not wish to share in their lies, curses, and blasphemy. First, their synagogues should be set on fire, and whatever does not burn up should be covered or spread over with dirt so that no one may ever be able to see a cinder or stone of it. Second, their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed, for they perpetuate the same things there that they do in their synagogues. Third, they should be deprived of their prayer books and Talmuds in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught. Fourth, their rabbis must be forbidden under threat of death to teach anymore. Fifth, passport and traveling privileges should be absolutely forbidden to the Jews, for they have no business in the rural districts since they are not nobles, nor officials, nor merchants, nor the like. Let them stay at home to sum up, dear princes and nobles, who have Jews in your domains. If this advice of mine does not suit you, then find a better one so that you and we may be able to be free from this insufferable, devilish burden, the Jews." That bothers me incredibly. And so when I go to Yad Vashem or the Holocaust Museum in D.C. and I see those words printed on the wall, my heart goes out to the Hebrew people. John Calvin, who also taught replacement theology, again, it is now the popular theology in America. And so you've got schools, and I'll document it for you, like Wheaton College, who every year sent a group of students to Bethlehem that says God is done with the Jewish people and that the church is the new Israel. Listen to what Calvin said. This was translated from French into English, and it's a reliable translation. 
the Jews, rotten and unbending and obstinate as they are, deserve that they be oppressed without measure or end, and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. Now, please do not misunderstand me. I am not saying that every 21st century Calvinist or any pastor who espouses reformed or replacement theology has this view of the Jewish people. Many of them are as embarrassed over these statements as I am. But Luther and Calvin, who both come out of Catholicism, did not understand God's dealing with Israel, and neither do most Calvinists today. You see, Calvin thought that since the Jewish nation rejected Jesus as the Messiah, that God was done with his people Israel. And so he goes to Geneva, and he tries to set up a theocracy like in the Old Testament. And just like you would deal with heretics by killing them, he had one man burned at the stake, and in his own words, used plenty of green words that it might be painful. We are not the new Israel. Israel is Israel. The church is the church. God is not done with Israel. So when Calvin comes to Romans 9, 10, and 11, he doesn't see God choosing one nation out of all the nations of the world. He sees personal election. God choosing some to go to heaven and others to go to hell. Romans 9, and I went through six messages in it when I preached through Romans, and we went through all the Old Testament texts in their context, is not teaching personal election, it's teaching national election. That out of all the nations of the world, God chose the Jew to be his people through whom he will fulfill salvation history. Two nations are in your womb, Genesis says. And God chose one nation over another. Romans 9 deals with Israel's election. Romans 10 deals with their rejection. Why are they in unbelief? And Romans 11 deals with their future restoration. Now, I want you to see that God made a covenant with the Hebrew people when he started them that is still in place today. Hold your finger here and go to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 15. This is foundational to your understanding of Revelation. And so there are people today who say all of Revelation was fulfilled before 70 AD. Why? Because they think God is done with Israel. And then there are other people like Luther who took the historical view of Revelation, not a futuristic view, and he said it was being fulfilled during their lifetime. No, 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 no. These are things that have never happened. And if you're consistent in the way you interpret Revelation, that will be the only conclusion you can come to. Genesis chapter 15. Here, let me start with kind of a thumbnail sketch. The focus concerns the promised land, a piece of property that God is going to give to the Jewish people. Starting in verse 7, God affirms his commitment to give Abram and his people the promised land. And then in verses 18 to 21, he assures Abram, or I'll call him Abraham at times. All right, Stephen did that, even though his name hadn't yet been changed. So don't get mad at me. I'm in good company. Uh, And in 8 to 21, he affirms once again that the Jewish people are given a particular piece of real estate. And before we're done, I think you will see that it is in the heart and mind of God Almighty to finish human history as the Revelation is going to teach through this piece of real estate. Look at Genesis 15 and verse 7. 
And he said to him, to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. When God first calls Abram, he is 75 years old. He calls him out of Ur of Chaldee. And he says, he's already said in in Genesis 12, 7, to your descendants, I will give this land. Years later, uh, they're on a sojourn and uh, the cowboys of Lot and the cowboys of Abram get into a little bit of a range war of sorts and they stand up on a mountain and they have to split and divide the land and God, after Lot chooses the wrong piece of property, but God has Abram choose the right piece of property, God says, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you, and listen, and to your descendants forever forever. So we're in a big dispute every day. There's fussing and feuding. Who owns the land? God Almighty says the Jewish people own the land. Now that doesn't mean that the Jews should mistreat Arabs. And it doesn't always mean that the Jew is in the white hat and the Arab is in the black hat, so to speak. But the land belongs to the Jewish people. And just as they had compassion, just as they were shown compassion when they were alien and strangers, God says in Torah that they too are to show compassion to those who are foreigners in the land. But it is their land. God gave it to the Jewish people. And so about a decade later, God appears again to Abram here in Genesis 15, 7. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to possess it. And you cannot read Genesis without seeing that the land and the people are an essential part of the covenant that God makes with the folks called Israel. Salvation history takes place on this piece of property. The Lord Jesus dies in Israel, in Jerusalem. The Lord Jesus ascends from the Mount of Olives into heaven, and someday he's coming back to that very mountain in his second coming. His feet will touch the Mount of Olives, and he will split it in two. Salvation history, from beginning to end, takes place in Israel. Now, Luther, of course, terribly messed up in interpreting Revelation because he thought God was done with the Jew, so he said, well, it's all being fulfilled. He thought the Antichrist was alive in his day. He was even a date setter of sorts. Calvin, he, he, I have Calvin's commentaries. Every commentary that Calvin ever wrote, I have. And he has a commentary on every book of the Bible except one, Revelation. Because he didn't know what to do with it. He was all balled up in his view of Israel. So here's Abram, and God is promising him this land so that his descendants can enjoy it, but there's one big problem. Verses 19 to 21 of this chapter indicate there's 10 pagan nations in it. The Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Catonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Girgashite, the Jebusite, the Mosquitobite. You know, they're all there. And then Abram asks an honest question in verse 8. Oh, Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? By the way, this is not a sign of unbelief. He's asking for some assurance. In verses 1 through 6 of this chapter, he is confident that God would give him the land that he promised. The problem is, is it's overrun by pagan nations. And so he asks a very important question. Oh, God, I want to know. Tell me the specifics. And so God understands that Abram is not questioning the integrity of God's word when he asks, oh, Lord, how may I know that I may possess it? 
And so God answers with a visual aid. And tomorrow, we'll look at God's answer to Abram as we continue this study entitled Israel Front and Center. To listen again to this message, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV19. And if you can help support Search the Scriptures with a one-time gift or by becoming a regular Search the Scriptures supporter, call 877-787-7478 or click the Give button at searchthescriptures.org or on the Search the Scriptures app. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll conclude our look at Israel front and center. Join us then as we search the scriptures. <music>